You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another edition of Return of the Historic Faith with Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. I will be your host for this episode, and we are going to be continuing our reading of Origins of Evil, Book 1, Kabbalah, and today we will be reading chapter 2. Yesterday we read chapter 1, and we are going to continue where we left off yesterday, beginning with chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading a chapter a day like I said yesterday, but if we happen to be reading one of the shorter chapters because some of the chapters are longer than others or if we have enough time I may cover more than one chapter in an episode it just all depends however today will just be one chapter because today we'll be reading chapter two which is one of the longer chapters in the book It's also one of the better chapters in the book, I think. It's one of my favorite chapters. It's all about the uh, sons of God and the Nephilim and the very beginnings and origins of the occult. It actually picks up where... Uh, chapter 1 left off with the Divine Council and the Nephilim. So, without any further ado, we are going to dive right in the next chapter. Chapter 2, the Divine Council and the Nephilim. Origins of Evil, Book 1, Kabbalah, by Pastor Jeremy Anderson. Chapter 2, The Divine Council and the Nephilim. Children often ask, what was there before God made the world? The answer most adults would give is that God was there. That's true, but also incomplete. God had company, and I'm not talking about the other members of the Trinity. God's family, the biblical answer, is that the heavenly host was with God before creation. In fact, they witnessed it. What God says to Job in 
Job chapter 38, 4 through 7 is very clear on that point. It says, Where were you at my laying the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you possess understanding. Who determined its measurement? Yes, you do know. Or who stretched the measuring line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars were singing together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, when God laid the foundations of the earth, the sons of God were there shouting for joy. But who are the sons of God? Obviously, they aren't humans. This is before the creation of the world. We might think of them as angels, but that wouldn't be quite correct either. The unseen world has a hierarchy, something reflected in such terms as archangel versus angel. That hierarchy is sometimes difficult for us to discern in the Old Testament since we aren't accustomed to viewing the unseen world like a dynastic household, as an Israelite would have possessed certain terms used to describe the hierarchy. In the ancient Semitic world, sons of God, or the Hebrew Benai Elohim, is a phrase used to identify divine beings with higher level responsibilities, or in the heavenly realm as well. Psalms 82 is perhaps the clearest and perhaps the most startling. As I related in the first chapter, it's the passage that opened my own eyes. The psalm refers to Yahweh's administration as a council. The verse verse reads, God, or Elohim, stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods. Also Elohim. You no doubt noticed, as I pointed out in chapter 1, the word Elohim occurs twice in this verse. You also probably recognize Elohim as one of God's names, despite the fact that the form of the word is plural. In English, we make words plural by adding an S or ES or IES. For example, rats, horses, or stories. In Hebrew, however, plurals of masculine nouns end with I-M. While the word Elohim is plural in form, its meaning can be either plural or singular. Most often, over 2,000 times, in the Hebrew Bible, it is singular, referring to the God of Israel. 
We have words like this in English. For example, the word sheep can either be singular or plural. When we see sheep by itself, we don't know if we should think of one sheep or a flock of sheep. If we put sheep into a sentence such as the sheep is lost, we know that only one sheep is meant since the verb requires a singular subject. Likewise, the sheep are lost informs us that the status of more than one sheep is being discussed. Grammar guides us. It's the same with Hebrew. Psalm 82.1 is especially interesting since Elohim occurs twice in that single verse. In Psalms 82.1, the first Elohim must be singular since the Hebrew grammar has the word as the subject of a singular verbal form, stands. The second Elohim must be plural since the preposition in front of it, in the midst of, requires more than one. You can't be in the midst of one. The preposition calls for a group as does the earlier noun, assembly. The meaning of the verse is inescapable. The singular Elohim of Israel presides over an assembly of Elohim. A quick read of Psalm 82 informs us that God has called this council meeting to judge the Elohim for corrupt rule of the nations. Verse 6 of the psalm declares that these Elohim are sons of God. God says to them, I have said, you are God's Elohim and sons of the Most High, B'nai Elion, all of you. To a biblical writer, the Most High, or Elion, was the God of Israel. The Old Testament refers to him as the Most High in several places, such as Genesis 14, 18-22, Numbers 24, 16, Psalms 7, 17, 18, 13, and 47, 2. The sons of God the Most High here are clearly called Elohim. As the pronoun you in verse 6 is a plural form in the Hebrew, the text is not clear whether all of the Elohim are under judgment or just some. The idea of Elohim ruling the nations under God's authority is a biblical concept that is described in other passages that we'll explore later. For now, it's sufficient that you see clearly that the sons of God are divine beings under the authority of the God of Israel. Now you see why this psalm threw me for a loop. The 
first verse has God presiding over an assembly of other gods. That sounds like a pantheon, and that's something that we associate with polytheism and mythology. So for that very reason, many English translations obscure the Hebrew in this verse. For example, the NASB translates it as God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. There's no need to camouflage what the Hebrew text says. People shouldn't be protected from the Bible. The biblical writers were not polytheist. But since Psalm 82 generates questions and controversy, we need to spend some time on what it teaches and what it doesn't teach, along with other passages that inform us about the divine counsel. The reason for this is the sons of God from Psalms 82 are the same sons of God from Genesis chapter 6, or at least they're the same kind of heavenly being. They are very possibly 70 of the same 200 sons of God from both Genesis 6 and Enoch 6 that descended upon Mount Hermon in the days of Jared. However, there is much debate on how the Nephilim got to be on the earth after the flood. Some believe that there was a second incursion of watchers who mated with humans around the time of the Tower of Babel or around the time of Abraham and Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And although, like I said in chapter 1, I do not believe that this is the case, a second incursion is possible. I believe that the Bible also gives us clues as to how the Nephilim came to be after the flood. In the book of Job, there's a passage that says, Rephaim are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says, Shall giants be formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof? After the flood, the Bible refers to the giant clans as the Rephaim. Before and after the flood, the Watchers and the Nephilim were worshipped as gods by the people and the pantheons of religions of nations like Egypt, Babylon, Greece, Rome, and the Canaanites. These religions were made up of the same gods and demigods, only with different names in each nation. This is where all of the ancient mystery religions of Egypt, Babylon, and eventually Israel came from. This was not the way that God intended it. 
the divine council is the view that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the head of a group of heavenly beings, if you will, consisting of lesser gods, or Elohim, who serve him, carry out his will, and even deliberate with him in decision-making. Some of these members were assigned to the 70 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10 after the Babel event, but they judged the nations they were assigned to corruptly, so God pronounced judgment on them that they would die like men. These gods became the pagan gods that Israel's neighbors worshipped and who warred against God all throughout salvation history. The biblical authors compare Yahweh to the gods of the nations. In several biblical passages throughout the Old Testament, we find phrases from the biblical authors exalting Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, above the gods of their pagan neighbors. Let me give just a few examples. Psalms 97.9 says, For thou, Lord, art high above the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Exodus 15.11 says, who is like unto these, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? 1 Kings 8.23 says, And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keep thy covenant with thy servants that walk before thee with all thy heart. Psalms 86, 8 says, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. The biblical authors compares Yahweh to other gods. They say that Yahweh is greater than all other gods. No one is like him. He is exalted above them all. There is not one among the gods like Yahweh. Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser, perhaps the world's leading authority on the biblical divine council, says this. The question Christians must wrestle with is, how do statements like this make sense if these other gods do not really exist? Think of how it would sound if someone tried to exalt Jesus to an imaginary creature. It would not only be offensive to say Jesus is better than a leprechaun, it would be illogical. The same is true for the comparison between God and the other deities in the Old Testament. The ancient authors are not comparing God to imaginary beings. Heiser goes on to say that in order for the aforementioned biblical text to not be illogical nor blasphemous, 
the gods to which these biblical texts refer to must be real. I think that Heiser is absolutely right. But doesn't the Bible say that the gods are not real? Doesn't the Bible contain numerous statements that there is only one God? What about 1 Timothy 2 verses 5 through 6, which says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Paul says very clearly in this passage, There is one God. How could Paul have made it any plainer than the only real deity that exists is Yahweh? God said through the prophet Isaiah, Understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Isaiah 43.10 And thus says the Lord, and King and Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God but me. Isaiah 44, 6 says, And I am the Lord, and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. Deuteronomy 4, 35 says, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. These passages seem pretty clear-cut. The only deity that exists is Yahweh. If Yahweh is the only real God, any other gods must be imaginary. Adopting this interpretation would be fine if it were not for the various verses in the previous section of this chapter that compares Yahweh to the other deities, which, as Michael Heiser and I have both argued, would be illogical and blasphemous if these other deities weren't real. If the comparison passages for example, Psalm 86, 9, and denial passages like Deuteronomy 4.35 are both taken literally, there is a contradiction in the Bible. But since the entirety of the Bible comes from an inerrant God, we know that the Bible cannot contradict itself. An error on the part of us as interpreters must have occurred somewhere. So where did that interpretive error occur? I think the interpretive error occurred in the taking the denial passages as denial passages. It's far more plausible and likely that these are not at all denial passages, but rather statements of incomparability. By saying, I am God, and there is no God besides me, there is no God but me, and there will be none after me, and the Lord is God, besides him there is no other, 
Yahweh and the prophets are saying that Yahweh is the greatest God there is. They are saying that he is the most supreme entity in the universe. This can easily be seen when you look at the other passages of scripture like Isaiah 47 in which God is pronouncing judgment upon the nation of Babylon. We know it's about Babylon because God addresses the city by name in verse 1. In Isaiah 47, 8, God says, Now therefore hear this, you lovers of pleasure who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Zephaniah 2.15 says this of Nineveh. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one and there is none besides me. Now, comparing these two passages, we know that obviously neither Babylon nor Nineveh were saying that they were the only nations that existed on the face of the planet. That would be clearly absurd and ridiculous to say. Rather, these cities use language to assert their incomparability. They were not making the absurd claim that they were the only nations that existed and any other nations were figments of people's imaginations. They were saying that they were the greatest nations on earth. It would be like if I said Nintendo is the company that makes video games and there is no video game company besides it. That isn't to say I'm denying the existence of the companies behind PlayStation or Xbox. I just think Nintendo's franchise is supreme. Mario, Pokemon, and Zelda. <laughs> what about idols? What about passages that say things like idols are nothing? They can't see nor hear. In Isaiah, an idol is nothing. Also, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says an idol is nothing. This is where understanding the cultural mindset of the ancient authors and the cultural context helps to shed light. Professor John Walton explains in his book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament, that the image of an idol needed to be approved by the God whose image it was being made. So the gods were responsible for initiating the manufacturing process. At the end of the process, rituals were performed to transfer the deity from the spiritual world to the physical world by a process that one may refer to as 
actualizing the presence of the God in the temple. Consequently, the production of the image was viewed not in human terms, but as a miraculous process through which the deity worked, not unlike traditional Christian concept of inspiration of scripture. The most significant was the opening of the mouth ritual. The procedure was carried out to enable the image to eat bread, drink water, and smell incense, that is, to receive worship on behalf of the deity. Professor John Walton goes on to write, at the end of the mouthwashing ceremony, as the deity entered the inner sanctum, an incantation was pronounced, indicating that hereafter the god would remain in his house the image also functioned to mediate revelation from the deity. While the author said that idols were nothing, as we'll see in the next subheader, they did not deny there were real spiritual entities behind them. So is the Bible polytheistic then? first time I encountered this material in Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, Michael Heiser writes, I know how difficult it was for me to understand that some cherished notions about the word G-O-D were actually misconceptions. One was an idea that dealt with in the last chapter, that the false gods of the Bible were only idols. Another notion that didn't conform to the reality of the text was about the word G-O-D as only being a name, not just an ordinary noun. Because I thought G-O-D was exclusively the name of a personal being and a unique being in that, I tended to assign the attributes of that being, Yahweh of Israel, to the three letters G-O-D. When I came to realize that there were other G-O-D-S in a heavenly council, it seemed, and that's an important word, as though Yahweh was just one among equals. However, Yahweh is inherently distinct and superior to all other gods. Yahweh is an Elohim, or God, but no other Elohim or gods are Yahweh. I'm not assuming that this chapter answered all your questions about the Divine Council. I'm betting that many of you are like I was after first discovering what the inspired text really says. What the ancient worldview of Israel really assumed. 
you still may be stuck on the idea that there can only be one Elohim since Yahweh is called Elohim in so many places in the Bible. And if that's not true, you might be asking, then what exactly is an Elohim? End quote. Michael Heiser points out that the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. And Heiser shows a variety of different usages of Elohim, which show that it did not always refer to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was also used to refer to the members of Yahweh's council, as seen in Psalms 82, verses 1 and 6, the gods and goddesses of other nations, as seen in Judges 11.24 and 1 Kings 11.33, to demons, the Hebrew word shadim, in Deuteronomy 32.17. Also, the deceased Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 28.13. Also, angels or the angel of God in Genesis 37, I mean 35, 7. After wrestling with this concept in my mind for a week after reading Heiser's book, I came to this conclusion. I think Heiser's proposal is a powerful one, and it explains much. It doesn't threaten monotheism as I first thought it did. It might entail theism at worst. However, it appears to me that the Hebrew term Elohim is synonymous with our English word spirit. A spirit is just an immaterial, unembodied, or disembodied mind. God is a spirit, but there are also evil spirits like demons. There are good spirits like angels. And many of us would say that deceased humans in the intermediate state are also spirits. However, although there are many spirits, there is only one omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, uncreated, and morally perfect spirit, and that is God, Yahweh. The Hebrew word Elohim seems to have been used in exactly the same way. Yahweh is an Elohim, and there are many other Elohim, but there is only one omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, uncreated, and morally perfect Elohim, and that is Yahweh. Certainly, Yahweh, angels, demons, and even deceased humans would fall under the modern Western definition of spirit. They also fall under the ancient Hebrew definition of Elohim. There is only one ultimate supreme Elohim. There is only one maximally great spirit. That is Yahweh. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All other are lesser Elohim gods or spirits. What the Divine Council Does As I said in the first part of this chapter, the Divine Council serves God and even participates with Him in some of His actions. In the Unseen Realm, Dr. Michael Heiser says that the ancient Hebrews would have interpreted Genesis 1, 26 and 27 as the Divine Council participating in the creation of human beings. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowls of the air and over cattle and over all the earth and over everything that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image in his own image he created them. Male and female he created them. What happened here was that God said to his divine counsel, let us make man in our image. Now, one might object that if the divine counsel participated in man's creation, that this gives creative power to beings other than Yahweh. But that's not the case. This would only be so if Yahweh combined his powers with those of the other members of the council to bring man materially into being. And that's not what Genesis 1 is about anyway. However, Heiser says that God saying, let us make man in our image, is the same as me saying to my friends, let us get pizza for dinner. Although I alone drove to Little Caesars and brought the pizza home, my friends participated with me in the decision and gave me their approval. In other words, God was basically asking, I'm thinking of creating humans in our image. How does that sound to you? And the divine council was like, that sounds awesome. And then God created man in the image of him, which the divine council members also share that image. Only God has creative power, as seen in John chapter 1. But the divine council nodded their heads in agreement to it. Now, that's not to say in any way that God needed their approval. He was merely showing that he is indeed a good, good father and loving creator. More blatant, however, is 1 Kings 22. In this passage, Yahweh and his council are debating the best course of action to take in bringing the demise of King Ahab. 
one says one thing and another says another. Finally, one spirit says that he will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all Ahab's prophets. And Yahweh basically says, okay, that will work. The Divine Council and Some of Its Members In Genesis 10, we read the account of the Tower of Babel. Most Old Testament scholars now agree that the sin committed here was not a sin of pride trying to build their way up to God, but rather their sin was building a ziggurat which was to bring God down to their level. God did not like this and so confused their languages to interrupt the building project. The text then goes on to describe the people's dispersion into the 70 known nations of that day. This is called the Table of Nations. Now, what's interesting is that when Moses is recalling the Babel event after freeing the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, Moses says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of of the sons of God. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8. So, did these 70 nations basically have a national guardian angel? If only that were so. Instead, Psalms 82 informs us that these sons of God became corrupt. I'll quote the entire psalm below. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men ye shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. Psalms 82 tells us that God, Elohim, took his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. The psalmist goes on to tell us that these gods, or Elohim, are being judged for their corrupt ruling. It also says that they are the sons of God. Interpreting Genesis 10, Deuteronomy 32, and Psalms 82 together, we come to this conclusion. There were members of the divine council 
who, like the humans, didn't want to represent God's authority anymore. They wanted to be God, and so they rebelled. They created beings. They were created beings. And they deceived humans into worshiping them instead of their creator. And so, Babel becomes the biblical image for both the spiritual as well as the human rebellions. And so, God scatters the people of Babel into different nations. And in the book of Deuteronomy, this is when Moses said, God also scattered the rebels of the divine council with them. So the nations are handed over to spiritual rulers. God against the gods. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses is rehearsing how Israel sinned during their wilderness trek by worshiping other gods. When we get to verse 17, we read this statement. They sacrificed to demons, not God. To gods, or Elohim, they had never known. New gods that had come along recently, whom your fathers had not feared. The important observation is that the Israelites sacrificed to demons and that those recipients of the sacrifices are also called gods or Elohim. Paul also says that the pagan gods are demons in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20. Author Brian Gadawa made use of this biblical fact in his Chronicles of the Nephilim and Chronicles of the Apocalypse novel series. Brian has a large number of demon characters working behind the scenes in both of these novel series. The demonic entities take on the identity of the gods in the various polytheistic religions of the world such as Apollyon or Satan, the Roman sun god, Zeus, the god of thunder, Baal, the Israelite storm god, Asherah, as well as others. Both Dr. Michael Heiser and Brian Gadawa got me to thinking, what if the polytheistic gods aren't figments of pagan imagination, but rather demons trying to lead people away from Yahweh. It would make perfect sense. After all, wanting to be God is what initiated the demonic rebellion in the first place. It wouldn't at all be implausible for the demons to masquerade as pagan gods, inspire all sorts of wild stories about them, and lead people into worshiping them. Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Corinthians 10.20 say that there are demons behind every idol. Looking at the Bible in its ancient context, 
leads to this conclusion. There are many gods, but there is only one God. There are many powerful supernatural beings, but there is only one ultimate supreme supernatural being. This ultimately leads to an alternate reading of other biblical passages, such as the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 23. Or Jeremiah 46.25 that says, The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring judgment on Ammon, God of Thebes, on Pharaoh of Egypt, and her gods and kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh. How can God punish gods if they don't exist? Well, we don't need to say they don't exist we can say that they're demonic entities. Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Corinthians 10.20 tell us this. As for the first commandment, God says that we should not worship these other supernatural beings. So thanks to the work of authors like Dr. Michael Heiser and passages like Deuteronomy 32 and Psalms 82, we know that there is, in fact, a divine council made up of Yahweh and the gods of the Gentiles from the table of nations. But the gods of the other nations are not gods in the way that Yahweh is God. The word God in the King James Bible is simply the English translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. The word Elohim in Hebrew doesn't define what someone or something is the way the word God in English does. Instead, it defines where someone or something comes from. And in this case, Elohim means from the spirit world. Also, just like in English, only when it's referring to the Creator Yahweh is the Hebrew word Elohim capitalized. So the Elohim or spirit beings of the Gentile nations were not gods in the way today's English-speaking people would think of a god. The Gentile gods were supposed to direct people of those nations to worship the Creator Yahweh, but instead they became prideful and fell. They allowed the people to worship them, which again is why Psalms 82, 6-8 says, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and shall fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. From the time of the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, 
God has had a plan to restore us and bring us back into communion with Him. He chose one righteous man in a world full of sin and chaos and made of him the great nation of Israel through whom Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, would be born out of, restoring our way to the Father and giving all people the chance to be a part of the Israel of God. All throughout the Old Testament, starting with King Solomon, the nations of Israel and eventually Judah kept getting caught up in idolatry and the worship of these gods of the nations. This was a very important part of the enemy's plan to try and stop the Messiah from being born as prophesied in the Bible. Also, Satan and the fallen watchers hate humanity, especially Yahweh's chosen. And because the children of Israel were chosen by God to be a nation of priests and kings and be a light unto all nations, he tried to destroy them using every weapon in his arsenal to separate all of the children of Israel from Yahweh. The enemy knew that it was impossible for them or for any human to curse God's chosen people, but there was a way. Through cunning and subtlety, just like with Adam and Eve in the garden, the children of Israel could be lured into cursing themselves, as we will see in the next chapter. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening to today's reading of Origins of Evil, Book 1, Kabbalah. I hope you all will join me again tomorrow as we continue our reading begin again with chapter 3, Divided and Conquered, The Corruption of Israel and Judah. Until next time, for the Next Chapter Radio Network and Return of the Historic Faith, I'm Pastor Jeremy Anderson saying God bless you all, grace, and peace. Yes.